Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Anne Beattie, whose latest novel is A Wonderful Stroke of Luck. There are 11 collections of short stories, nine novels. This novel is about somebody who sits between Generation Y and a millennial. But let's go back. Uh, You just mentioned that this book has been sitting around for a couple of years. When did you start A Wonderful Stroke of Luck? I don't know. It was really a couple of years, but uh, publishers' thinking in New York was that they didn't want anything to come out during the midterm elections because the book-buying public would be preoccupied. So the book was in and might have been published six months ago, a year ago. I don't really know. I worked on it for several years, on and off for several years, and was very much helped by the editing of Alison Lawrenson, who is my editor now at This particular book, it's a novel about a man named Ben, Mm -hmm. or a boy named Ben, who becomes a man. One of the reviews said that his last name wasn't mentioned, but I thought I saw it once in this book. Am I wrong? I think you saw it once in the book, but don't ask me the page. The book starts when the kids are in boarding school, and some of them are known by their last name, some of them are known by their first name, some of them, everyone has a nickname, almost everyone has a nickname conferred by one of the teachers. So I kind of stuck with that. He was Ben, whereas other friends who went to the boarding school might have really had their nickname stick or something like that. As is said in the book, his nickname is Big Ben, but nobody even calls him by his nickname. It's just that he does have one if he needs to call on it. So nothing, nothing more than that. Do you remember what brought you to begin writing the opening lines? I mean, maybe you knew where you were going, or maybe you just kind of said, I'll go with it. I live in uh, southern Maine during the summer, so New Hampshire is very, very close by. And um, I was saying earlier today at the book festival that my husband is a painter, and I um, often go to speak to students at colleges. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me because I was a public school kid and lost in the shuffle. And the boarding schools that are so prevalent in where I live in New Hampshire, it's kind of a composite of many of those places that I went to as a visitor. So you began, I'll just start writing about the school. Was Ben in your mind? What Do you remember the, the actual trigger for the book? I wish I had some wonderful story that I could respond with, but the honest answer is that I always start with the visuals, and so I was imagining just the kind of green, hilly, open-aired places that you know I had walked through as an adult and as a writer in so many other um, capacities. Just thinking about that and uh, how Ben popped up or why he was given that name, I don't know. I didn't change it, though. Some other names got changed, but his name never got changed. Did you always know it was going to be a novel rather than a story that ended 10 or 20 pages later? I didn't know that I was going to succeed with getting a rough draft of a novel, but that was my intention. When you say it was your intention, were you then thinking of, I am going to follow him 
X number of years after the beginning of the book? I guess I was thinking more that I'm going to explore his psychology. And then it became interesting to me to think about, well, it's it's one set of... um, uh, you know, realities that we're dealing with when he's young. And then if you flip forward in time, uh, who who's a keeper? What ideas stay with him? Uh, what what was the effect of all these early years at school? So you know, the book initially had an asterisk in the middle, and it was only at Bailey Academy and only about 15, 20 years later. When you were beginning it then, um, you were thinking about it in a very different way than you'd think about a short story, because a short story is going to, at some point, kind of stop, whereas here you know it's going to be kind of, rather than a thin river, it's going to be more like a lake. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. And also it is, in fact, peopled with a lot of characters at the beginning because that's the reality of school life. So I was keeping my eye on him, but I wanted to throw the reader off and have it seem to be about some general situation at the beginning of the book. One of the key elements of the book is his relationship with uh, Professor Pierre La Verdure. Those kinds of names, they just pop into your head to start? They don't usually. You know, I've taken some kidding for naming people things repeatedly like John and Mary and <laughs> Martha and whatever. Uh, and Ben, there you go. There's an or- a pretty common name. I wanted to make him distinct from the other teachers at the university because he is sort of the odd man out in all senses. He doesn't really quite mix with either the adults or the or the students, or at least in the way that the students would wish? It's interesting because I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York, which oh. is kind of a specialized school, uh-huh. and we had teachers who were eccentric uh-huh. like him, uh-huh. and where the relationships aren't quite the same as they are in, say, a regular school. Uh-huh. I mean, were you trying to kind of get there? Did you understand that? Well, when I did go to public school in Washington, D.C., I have to say that some of my teachers had taught my parents. (laughs) And I don't know if we're talking, if I'm just being an ageist or if we're really talking about eccentricities, but I thought those teachers at the point at which I had them, even though they might not have known my name and I might have been lost in the shuffle, were pretty eccentric characters. You know, I think, uh, I mean, it would just be my assumption that young people are both attracted to and a little on guard against eccentricity. They love to make fun of you if you're eccentric, but if you are if you fit in too much as an adult, they're, they're sometimes pretty wary of you. For instance, there's another professor, Ha, uh-huh. and there's a bunch of kids like Jasper. Did you know going in exactly what role they might play or not play later on in the book? I had to put enough people around him that it would seem real that he was there living that life at the school. I don't know where I got Dr. Ha's name from either. I mean, just pulled out of the air. And again, I'm trying to think of an example of some name I changed. I think maybe they they were a little bit too new agey or something with aqua. And there were too many A's. So I had to do find and replace and name one of the characters something else. I think I hit on Hannah or something like that. Most of your previous work involved the boomer generation, and these are the children of the boomer generation. Uh, So on some level, you're dealing with a new generation that you haven't really focused on that much in the past. Did that make it more difficult for you? To tell you the truth, although I am working within what I think is a a realistic tradition way of writing, I mean, I want these things to be recognizable, but 
I've never been particularly impressed, even when I was in the middle of it, even when I was first called a boomer and the media first came up with that label and so forth, that that was very definitive. I mean, as a writer, really, honestly, I'm I'm working against those kind of all-encompassing generalizations. I know that Allison Lawrence and my editor herself went to boarding school, and I was relieved that she thought... I kind of got it right, you know. And of course, you have friends of various, I do, I have friends of varying ages. And uh, if you're a writer, uh, I think leaving age aside, people maybe talk to you sometimes a little differently than they talk to somebody that they think isn't sort of an outsider. The book starts, and Beauty, with 9-11, or shortly before 9-11. One of the things that struck me you might have been driving at is how an event like that changes everybody in subsequent years. Was that part of the process? Sure. I mean, once I realized when the book was set, I didn't plan to write anything about 9-11 either. I mean, my notion was vague enough that I wanted to follow an individual character and his kind of mercurial teacher and see where they took me in the book. But it seemed a natural once I got into things that 9-11 might happen during those years. And that determined the chronology and his age for the rest of the book, too, because it happens in his senior year of high school. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that some people, writers talk about creation and some talk about discovery. And it seemed to me this is more in the discovery realm, that you're writing and suddenly, oh, this character's father might have been there. Oh, oh, there was. That's how it was. Yeah. I mean, you want enough significant encounters that it seems like daily life, but I didn't want the book to bog down in that either because my greater interest really was what happens to Ben when he gets propelled into the future. And you do that by kind of skimming certain periods in his life. We kind of zip right past, almost as if these become almost like short stories within the context of a novel. Does that make sense? Oh, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I suppose that would have been possible. It's just that once I've started with some genre, it's not like I ever expand a story into a novel or break a novel into things other than chapters and make it individual stories. But that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before. When we move on, we kind of skip past his time in college and wind up in New York a few years later. I noticed as I was trying to get a chronology that you were pretty vague about chronology. You didn't, so that we couldn't really focus on what year this was. Uh, How deliberate was that? Not very deliberate. I mean, one of my problems actually when I'm writing novels is to uh, not mess up in terms of the chronology. You know, once you have 9-11, it happened in the year it happened. And if he was a senior in that year, Uh, you know how many years I've jumped forward, except that you only see him, say, as uh, somebody who's had a series of jobs, which would take a certain number of years to pass, and then he's relocated to upstate New York. But you got a ballpark idea of what his age is in the book, I think. But other things are there deliberately to orient you toward the year, even if they seem like a minor thing, like a framed photograph of Barack Obama outside an antique store or something like that. So, you know, I, I tried to to put in enough that the reader could be oriented, but not so much that you would notice that I was deliberately kind of jumping from younger to older. Well, there is a kind of jump in that 
suddenly he has girlfriends and they kind of come and go and sometimes they came and went in the spaces between the scenes without actually filling in those gaps. Were you thinking in terms of any kind of reason for that or is it just how it wrote itself? No, it's not really how it wrote itself. And I certainly could have, I filled in other things. I mean, it once had an asterisk in it. There was part one and part two, uh, all but called that. But I was trying, I think, to mimic more the character's own sense of what's a major thing in my life and what's a minor thing in my life. And uh, whether he's right or not is an interesting question to debate. But he thinks he has a, a handle on things. He thinks, oh, I can name, I can name the first names of all the women that I've slept with or something like that. But that says something, doesn't it? I mean, that he himself wants to speed through that in that way. I could have written a book that was 800 pages in which you saw every affair transpire, <laughs> you know, in something more resembling so-called real time. But uh, it, it was deliberate. I was, I was um, structuring the book a bit to go along with his own uh, self-edit in terms of what was important in his own life, if he were to tell his own story. So to that degree, he has a uh, difficult girlfriend named Alvy at one point. We meet her. I'm trying to remember if she was at the school or not. I, no. No, she wasn't. He met her at Cornell. Okay. But I think she didn't graduate and dropped out, and then he was there a bit after her. But yes, yeah, she's, she's a college friend. Yeah. And we kind of meet her in the middle of the downslope of their relationship mm-hmm. when he's kind of trying to hang on as best he can and she doesn't make it easier i love reading about her did you have fun writing her yeah i did have fun writing her <laughs> I, I i had to restrain myself a little bit because she's pretty out there as it is and you know as with Ben, I mean, they, they do have something in common in that, not that they think, oh, I've got it all figured out, but that they have a way of speaking about themselves. The narration of the book more or less tells us what Ben is doing or makes it observable. She, you understand through her dialogue, she speaks very brutally almost, I would say, to him, and she's very outspoken. But what I was trying to get at was, in spite of how people would wish you to understand stories about themselves, what else do you see? What else do you understand? Well, in her case, we kind of pick up on things probably faster than he does. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that is one of those things that goes between reader and audience rather than the character registering it all. Yeah. He has another girlfriend on and off friend named Lulu. Mm-hmm. She goes through a lot of changes, but rather than focus on those changes, we're just basically looking at her through his eyes, and her changes from his perspective are sudden and strange, but from hers they wouldn't be, and I guess that was deliberate on your part. You know, I think life has sometimes conditional and things do intervene from the outside. I'm not saying that people's whole identities are just thrust upon them or anything like that. But again, I was kind of working the edges of things rather than trying to fully put on the page the evolution of things. That wasn't very interesting to me. Which is why he's best friend for a short period. Suddenly this gay co-worker and later on his neighbor Mm -hmm. is his best friend but we never 
really learn how they become best friends. They're just suddenly best friends. Yeah, because the book does take those liberties, but then they become best friends, but also the reader is hardly prepared for the fact that Steve and his wife, Jen, the neighbors, move away. They It's sort of like you, almost like you just turned the page. There was one little line of warning that they might, and you know what Jen thinks about going back to California, what Steve thinks about going back to California, but suddenly they're just gone, and Ben is there, and the new people are living in that house. But I think you know, the way life can suddenly just sort of overwhelm you and how you cope with that is at issue in this book. I mean, meant to be at issue in this book. Which is, I guess, why something like his actual finances aren't. I mean, he has jobs, but never once do we hear anything about, oh, I don't have money for this or that. And out of the blue, he buys a house. And at that point, I'm suddenly going, even though we haven't mentioned it yet, I'm suddenly going, He's a trust fund baby of some kind. Very little is made of it, but I really did have to explain his buying the house. And it's true. We see him in the house before we know that his father died. He inherited some money. His stepmother helped him out, and that's how he has the house. And it's also a very modest house. But at the same time, it's a house, mm-hmm. and he's never really had a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's sort of flunked out of all of his jobs. But when his teacher comes to visit him late in the novel, re-enters his life and comes back, the teacher says pretty much what you're saying. You know, like, oh, this is yours? Pretty nice place. Where'd you get all the furniture? You know, why don't you light the fireplace? Like, what's this about? So I realized that people would be reading in these terms, and I gave voice to it through someone else's perceptions. There was one point, and up until that point, It felt to me that he was almost like a cipher. We didn't really know that much about him. We knew everything around him, but we didn't know him. And then he has a date, and he dumps her in a way that nobody likes getting (laughs) dumped. And I'm going, you know, he's not that nice a guy, and it's the first time it occurred to me. Mm -hmm. How did that scene arise for you? Probably in the moment. In other words, he has many aspects to his character, but when they get revealed, really says something. And you're right, because when the book starts, he has that kind of group safety because of being, you know, with his schoolmates. And then when he's out on his own, well, that does tell you something more about somebody's character in terms of how they act when they're not protected by another big group of people. I mean, it tells you something about uh, who somebody really is when they leave the workplace on Friday and they spend whatever weekend they spend. So as the writer, you got to look at those weekends. At that point, he does begin to kind of question his behavior. He questions it, but we all also know he's somewhat troubled. You know, uh, at least I hope that there was not just a, oh, this is a bad guy reaction on the reader's part, but wait, this is out of character. Well, yes, because a new character is beginning to overwhelm him in adulthood. At this point, when you're writing a novel, as opposed to a short story, do, do you kind of at some point go, you know, I really have to go deeper than I really need to in a short story? Are you Is your brain moving in a different direction than it would? Because now you've got a character that where the edges are starting to get filled. In a short story, they don't have to. 
Well, certainly novels can take almost any form. You know, there's there's a right. lot of variation that's available to people there. And we're all very impressed when somebody does something that doesn't seem to have been done before in the novel or whatever. So that, that I guess, factors in a little bit, some sort of feeling that nothing is completely definitive that I'm, that I'm doing in that way. I mean, personally speaking, as I've always said, I just feel more at ease with the short story because uh, I can keep it all in my mind at the same time, and it's easier for me to judge what's a subtlety and what's very obvious in a short story and not so easy when it's spread over chronological time in 200 pages to say that just because something strikes me as being minor that it won't strike the reader as being major. You know, I feel like I can I can hint and suggest and guide more in a short story and that I just have to demonstrate it and absolutely let it, a lot of it speak for itself in a novel. Is that why you fill in, say, the gap on how he was able to purchase his house, whereas in a short story, you wouldn't have bothered. Well, what I always used to advise my writing students too was, if other people might be wondering about this, have someone else give voice to it and be dismissed, or it's the awareness that you as the writer understand that this is odd. But nevertheless, that's not going to mean that you're going to do something conventional. It's just the kind of secret wink between the writer and the reader. A Wonderful Stroke of Luck, that's a line from the Dalai Lama. Remember that not getting whatever you want is a wonderful stroke of luck, which sits at the very beginning of the book. Where did that come in for you? And without giving too much away, what exactly were you trying to say? For one thing, it's said by the Dalai Lama. I don't think he originated the thought, if I'm not wrong. I mean, it's sort of a variation of whatever that old cliche is of beware of answered prayers or something like that, right? But to me, it seemed to be a pretty good sort of governing principle of the thoughts of people because people think they know throughout this book what it is they think, even if what they think is, I'm confused, you know, even if they think something as paraphrasable as that. But then really what's happening is that nobody is getting exactly what they want, what they would think they want. Ben thinks he wants Lulu. Well, he can't have Lulu. Uh, then he thinks he can come to terms with that. Well, she raises the ante. Then she just plain disappears from her girlfriend's life as well as from his. You know, she's just out there. So the idea is you can think through things, not just Ben, but really if you think about it, almost all the characters in the book – have thought through things at one period of their life, but in that the world overwhelms them in some way, what is it that they can hope for or or wish to get as plan B or plan C if plan A just left them? I mean, if it was determined by something else. What I was thinking was that underneath it all, he never gets what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> and also he has trouble knowing what he wants. He's quite conflicted. And part of that is that in terms of his own identity, some information has been withheld from him, or he's had to change his perspective on many things. Uh, Lav... Lavardere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I said it that way because I have no idea how it's pronounced. It's a ma- it's, I know, it's a made-up name. But what I like about it is it contains the word dare, Lavardere, and there is this teacher who's ostensibly daring them to state their opinions, challenging them to do X, Y, and Z, but he turns out to be one of the more malevolent people of this book, more actively malevolent people of this book. Other people might just be heedless or unkind, but he's out there. I don't recall any element early on that would indicate 
his connection to Ben that we discover later. Was there any? But yet again, you know, Ben is operating in terms of thinking he understands things that he simply has no knowledge of, or there are other things that go along with that that he has no knowledge of. And when it suits the teacher's purposes, it's not necessarily the kindest thing toward Ben. When it suits the teacher's purposes, he kind of dumps all this in Ben's lap, and Ben is certainly surprised by this. Ben will know certain things about Laverdere. We will know certain things. Does Anne Beattie know more about these characters than we do? Even if I do, if I've made them seem real, 10 people in the world will know more than Anne Beattie does. Really? You know what I mean? In other words, you're, you're going exactly to the nature of what it is, that you, you have to operate by thinking you have certain information that makes sense to you, but somebody else who sees it entirely differently, who's standing behind you or who's way in front of you, will just simply have alternate information. Which I guess would be why if it became a film or something, you could have 10 actors playing the character and each will bring it a, something else. Yeah, that is the organizing principle of the book, though. You've, you've hit it on the head, yeah. A few other elements. There isn't that much about politics. I guess is that because you wanted to steer clear of that for this book? want to steer clear of it, probably once you mention 9-11, you know perfectly well who the president was then. And so in some sort of oblique form, there are enough points at which I think you're oriented toward who would have been president and what the politics would have been at the time, as opposed to having real scenes of a protest or whatever. Yeah. Also, this is the characters are somewhat apolitical, right? And I don't want to get into the millennial trap because that isn't how I think of this book, but uh, there you go. Most everything in the world sits at the margins because Ben himself is not looking in those directions. Is that pretty much it? He's pretty resistant to becoming a player in any way. I suppose that would be another way of saying what, what you just said, yeah. But again, I think there's some trauma there, and it's a particular psychological case that I'm looking at rather than um, just putting it out there as though there's nothing underlying it. Well, when we talk about this and we talk about this character and his view of the world, I take it this was not something that began when you first began writing, but something that developed? Or in your mind, were you thinking to yourself, this is the kind of character I want to explore? I guess without mentioning the obvious and without orienting the reader very deliberately to the times that I was hoping that the microcosm would be existing within a macrocosm. You know, that sounds like a pretty abstract answer, but uh, I'm perfectly capable of invoking a headline of the day or my political thoughts are there put into the mouth of other characters in this book sometimes. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think also that while it's not some deep-seated notion of mine that I feel I have to work with, that politics are implied in certain ways, and that you also need to be able to be free enough as a writer to, to at least look at psychology, not only in terms of a reaction to political 
life and political realities. Look, we're all tempted now. I mean, these are dreadful times. He might have been traumatized for a series of other reasons. To my mind, and the reason that I do late in the book, bring forth certain revelations about him. I mean, for example, we always know that his mother died young and so on and so forth. There are sort of usual traumas here, but there are unusual traumas too. I mean, a way in which he's been appropriated and used that I don't really see any necessity to contextualize politically in any way. He's angry. He also has to move on. And you chose at a certain point, and it's not necessarily contemporary, it could be a couple of years ago, to end it at a certain point. In your mind's eye, could you see where he would be going, or do you kind of go, okay, I'm closing the book now? <laughs> I worked really hard on that last chapter, you know. I, I knew, in effect, by the time I'd gotten to that, what I wanted it to do. So look, people in his life have really fallen away from him, or he's had to rethink the adults in his life because he's found out other factual things about them, even if those facts sometimes clash, you know. And the way I felt in that, I felt so claustrophobic when he and Lulu's former girlfriend, so it's not going to be a romantic relationship between the yeah, two of them, are nonetheless kind of... Um, sharing some kind of bond. They're going to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and they're riding downtown on the West Side Highway. And there's something in there about how he'd always think in terms of what used to be when he was going somewhere in New York. And, you know, for me, that's pretty outspoken in a book um, in terms of getting to the surface, what I, what I wanted to talk about. One element that changes between novel and a short story. So a short story... You have a voice, and that voice is going to change short story to short story. Mm -hmm. In the context of a novel, you have to maintain it for pages and pages and pages, and you can't vary it. For this book, did you find that freeing or stifling? Uh, not meaning to hedge my bets, both in a way, but in that it resided in a sort of imbalance of power from the beginning, a student, teacher, that kind of thing, somebody else being nominally in control of your life. Um, I, I tried to have it reside in that, but to be a larger issue. In other words, to make the reader aware that there were many imbalances of power, not just the one that was focused on at the very beginning. Now that you've written this, are you going back to short stories? I assume you've written some since. One or two. That's about it. I, really? I Yeah. Why? Well, that opens a can of worms. You know, I, I don't really know what the answer is. It's not that I feel like, oh, I should write another novel because I never feel that way in the abstract. Um, maybe just wanting to shake things up and do something different on my own part and not knowing exactly how to approach that, exactly how to go about that. Have you written plays? No. Screenplays? No. Chilly Scenes of Winter, your very first novel, did become a film which was edited poorly or something, given a new title, then re-edited more to everyone's satisfaction. Have you had other works translate? I've had things under option, but they've never gone beyond that. 
And, you know, Joan Micklin Silver wrote the screenplay for Chilly Scenes of Winter. I thought it was terrific. It was very strange, though, to realize when I was I was there on the set listening to this, and she did give me a copy when it was turned in. I didn't have any right of refusal or anything else, but I, I really like what she'd done a lot. But she had kept some of my lines, but then put them in with other characters. So I was tremendously confused. And also she went more in the direction of humor, which I very much appreciated, because I think Chilly Scenes of Winter on some level is... Very funny. I hope so. I mean, I was very amused when I was writing it. I certainly don't categorize, um, you know, a wonderful stroke of luck as being a million laughs, but I would hope that individual lines there, too, do kind of pop up and let you know that I know that sometimes these characters are all too serious. <laughs> well, they, they, they pop up a lot in the early part of the book at the Bailey, at Bailey Academy, where everybody is just trying to be just a little bit too clever. Yeah, but that that is true of school days, isn't it? I mean, you do feel like everybody's looking at you. I think as you get older, I mean, I can't generalize, but I can't imagine thinking everybody is looking at me now. I really don't think so. Have you thought about a play? Have you even thought of that? Is that something that's never crossed your mind? I tried doing that um, very early on. In fact, one of the producers of Chilly Scenes of Winter, Amy Robinson, uh, and I are still good friends. And many years ago, 80, 81, I can't remember, we went out to Sundance, which was very different than the big film festival thing it is now. It was more like going to boot camp and going to, you know, right. learning something. And I I did write, you know, I wasn't, I was doing a, a script uh, based on one of my own short stories. And it was in that context, like I was the student, and I was. And I learned a lot of things, but one of them is that while I would normally think of dialogue as being a strength of mine, when I can only use dialogue, it's that weird thing of it's taking on too much meaning, or it's being too overt, and I really like to be as subtle as I can possibly be. Of course, you have to give more information. You can't that's Give it. the information outside the dialogue. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, I really felt like my hands were tied. I I didn't like it. I didn't. You know, I, I respect people who can do that. But on the other hand, I mean, it's such a challenge. It would be a real challenge for you to do to step outside the comfort zone. Listen, you want me to write a screenplay? You give me the good idea, and you, and you promise to edit it. We'll we'll, we'll we'll be a team. You want to be a team? I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Your writing process, do you have any steady process? This is what I'm going to do in the morning, do something else in the afternoon. And is the process different for a short story than a novel? Somebody asked me recently in an interview what the worst piece of writing advice I had ever gotten was. I thought it was an interesting question. And I knew the answer immediately. I didn't say it was from Gore Vidal, but that's who it was from. It was from Gore Vidal. You must write every day. Nothing would scare me more. I like to think that, you know, brushing my teeth is voluntary. I don't know. I don't write every day. I don't aspire to write every day, but there's enough anxiety, and I'm dealing with so many more balls in the air writing a novel than a short story, which is what I spend most of my time writing, short stories, that uh, I do try to plug away at it because otherwise I'll just forget it or contradict myself and have terrible rewrites, you know, that I have to do and so forth. Does that mean that that when you begin writing, it's like, the idea is that I have to pull myself away to sleep or to eat because I'm totally involved in what I'm doing? If I'm writing a novel? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I'm very lucky in that I have a, compared to a, a lot of people's lives, you know, I, it's not as though I'm obliged to put dinner on the table every night or that I feel there are so many things that I can't have a lot of flexible time. It's always served me well all my life that I'm an insomniac. 
I have been since I was quite young. And when I was a baby, apparently my mother kept me up all night because she thought it was so fun to have somebody to talk to. Well, I'm sure she communicated all that joy and my brain got uh, programmed when I was young. But, you know, if I've got four, five, six hours in which everybody else is asleep, including all my friends, and I can write, fine. You teach writing. I have taught writing. Yes, I have. What can't you teach? What can you teach? It's really hard to answer that question because you can know what somebody's strengths and weaknesses are, but you don't want to etch that in stone because those things can change. And you also probably don't want to be the one that pronounces on that because a certain number of people will deliberately go in the opposite direction or other people will retreat and be too conservative. So in terms of that kind of passing of judgment, I'm pretty careful. I really prefer to be a line editor. And I think what you could teach them too is kind of to have the courage of their convictions, because sometimes a very exciting, unconventional story suddenly becomes conventional. You can say, didn't you maybe just seize up here? I mean, do you want to revisit that scene and see if there's something else underlying it? Because you could have a whole different direction the story went in. No harm. You can always put it back to the original version, but maybe you should explore here a little more or something like that. What about talking about whether something should be first person or third person. Bores me to death. Bores me to death. Yeah. I just really, I have nothing intelligent to say on that. I think um, most people's inclinations are right, or it's not a big thing for a lot of people to know that they often start with third person and then find they need to go to first or vice versa. It's just part of the working, it's part of the writing process. I personally, for whatever reason, I'm glad that that doesn't um, occur to me very often. I mean, I've almost never changed whether, you know, what whether it's first person or not. Because the story, the original thought of the story will bring whatever. Because even though they're bad, my rough drafts are complete enough that I have usually demonstrated, you know, what is major and minor when I have a rough draft. And therefore, inherently, I haven't gone wrong with that. I, I also don't take stories written in winter and set them in spring either. So there are a certain number of constants about what I write, even if I realize that I have to do much, many different things with the dialogue or something like that. Uh, for a book like um, A Wonderful Stroke of Luck, you knew from the beginning it was going to be close third person. I mean, that was always going to be. Absolutely. But of course, he changes. So that third person when you're a kid and that third person when you're kind of more defensive and many other complexities of adult life varies a lot. Well, when you're writing close third person or first person, it also means that everything has to come to them. Nothing. You can't you're not going to put in something from somewhere else. Which is, I guess, again, like everything else, both limiting and in some way freeing because you don't have to explain anything. Well, you're not going to put in something from somewhere else, but you certainly can have another character address it. Yeah. You know, you can you could always throw a curveball. One other element of this book, which kind of hit me after Steve and Ginny moved, is that there's a subtext about the relationship between friends. And that comes in again at the very, very end. When you're talking about these kinds of issues, how conscious is the process for you? Are you actually thinking these are themes or do they emerge afterward during the writing? Do you go back and kind of build something up or is it just the way it is? 
you understand what I mean? Yeah, I think I do understand what you mean. Um, tell me if I do. Uh, I think that I tend to take things out more than to put them there. And if I put things there, they're usually um, individual words or sentences rather than writing whole scenes. In other words, I by the time I've finished a book, um, even if something is going to be longer or shorter than it is, I think I... I think I can like almost hold it in my hands and tell what the weight of it is. By the end. By the end, yeah. yeah. Just ju only by the end, yeah. I've talked to people in theater and I've talked to uh -huh. writers and when they, when you start going into themes, most of them will say, that's not my problem. <laughs> Good for them, I'll take a tip. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like, that's your job to tell me what you think the themes are, not necessarily my job. But occasionally what I get is someone going, this is what I really wanted to do. Oh, I think that's fair enough. And, you know, sometimes if something hasn't worked uh, that I'm talking to somebody about, I will say this is what I wanted to do. And they'll say, oh, well, it, it, the simplest thing, in other words, might be a gesture in that direction, whereas I'm thinking it's some overwhelming problem. And that's why I've tried to pass it off rather than really grappling with it, you know. But it also means sometimes you've gone too subtle <laughs> because they're not getting it. I know it's true, but you have to really realize that people, I think, are a lot of people are really, really good readers. And, you know, that there you have it. Literature is in dialogue with other literature. And so if you remind, if you directly allude to things that are elsewhere, for example, this book directly alludes more than once to The Great Gatsby. It's a very common literary allusion. But of course, something like this is going to be analogous to Gatsby, because who's telling the story is all important to Gatsby. It happens to be a different individual, but Gatsby wouldn't be Gatsby. Ben's book, written by someone else, would not be, as you were saying, third, close third person, the way it is if filtered through his mind, you know. But you have to trust that all of those things begin to be real to the reader because they've read other things, because they understand what you're working with. If they don't pick up the particular illusion, you've done it wrong as a writer if everything depended on the particular illusion. Well, I keep thinking about when um, I interviewed Jane Smiley about A Thousand Acres, and I'd read the entire book, and it wasn't until afterward that someone said to me, King Lear, and I went, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, well, I've read books, and that's happened to me. I know, I know. Anne Beattie, this book is now out, and it was written a while ago, and you said you've written a couple of short stories since. Are you working on another novel? Well, actually, I was working on something for a while, but, you know, if I put it away for a couple of months, then it doesn't seem real to me until I just have to get back to it and really see what happens with that. I throw out the majority of what I do in rough draft still. Do you ever begin work on a novel and then go, holy cow, this is a short story? No, I, I don't think so. I think the only time I was working with a, uh, a short story that got quite long, I had that sort of so what reaction to it, you know, in terms of the main character. And then I thought, oh, I know what to do, you know, really bring in her polar opposite. That's what to do. And that's how my life starring Dara Falcon turned into a novel, because I realized that my goal had been too limited. I needed to bring somebody in as a challenge to what I'd tried to do. So that grew in length. And then, of course, with Chilly Scenes of Winter, which was my first published book, it was really a friend from the outside who even told me it was a novel. I could have been probably at that point in time convinced to pare it down to 25 pages. But in that I had a couple, he lopped off the beginning and said, okay, here you go, you know, 
start in the middle and you got a whole novel here. Write a couple more chapters somewhere. Do you have enough short stories now to put together another collection? At the point at which my last short story collection came out, I was choosing between 40 published stories, and uh, they would only let me put 13 in the book, and there are those 13, but all the other ones are just sitting there. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>